Hey, welcome back. Before we get started with this week's guest, I just wanted to address a couple things up top. First of all, the news is crazy lately. Obviously, coronavirus is a having a huge impact on the whole planet and something that we are all thinking about, worrying about. I hope you are safe and healthy. Um, it is going to be on a lot of people's minds for a while, but this podcast is not about that. Uh, we talk about evergreen filmmaking, photography, and creator tips here. And I would just invite you guys, if you happen to be staying home at the moment, maybe you're working from home, maybe you are in some kind of isolation, maybe you just have some time to kill, don't spend all of it on Netflix. Uh, it's cool to chill out and distract yourself, but I recommend distracting yourself by learning a new skill. I honestly think it's way more productive to keep your mind active. And that's how I plan on spending any extra time in this strange period. I'm going to be watching a lot of resolve tutorials and finally buckling down and learning capture one. Actually, this episode and the next one are pre-recorded, so everything is slightly time shifted here, but uh, it all remains the same because this is meant to mostly be an evergreen show. The information is stuff that you can use moving forward, but I did just want to touch on why uh, that's not something we're going to be acknowledging here. And the other big thing is that I need to apologize. My audio in this episode is a little screwed up. Usually I have my mic going through the DBX-286S, which does a little bit of processing. It's a preamp, and it also takes some of the background noise out. And then that goes into my sound devices, MixPre-3, and that's what's recording both me and the person on the other side. And then they send me the version uh, that they recorded locally, and I sync them up. But uh, <laughs> I happened to not have my sound devices when I was recording, so I plugged my mic through the DBX and into my camera into the Canon C200 recorded with that. And for some reason that in between DBX was overdriving my mic the whole time. So you'll find it's a little distorted, but I'm sure you're not here for excuses. So hopefully you enjoy the rest of this episode, even though it sounds worse than it should. Spencer Sakurai is here, who I know as a YouTuber and cinematographer, but I, part of inviting him on is to find out a little bit more about the work that he does. Cause um, if you've seen any of his videos, you know, they look good. Hey, Spencer, what's your secret? <laughs> I don't think there's any special <laughs> secret, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but tell me more about what you do outside of YouTube, because uh, all, all I really know is the videos that you make, which are pretty cool. If anybody hasn't seen them, um, not only do you do some camera reviews, but pretty helpful tips and tricks for cinematographers. Um, you also recreate cinematography and like lighting setups from Hollywood movies. Um, that's that's what I've seen. What, what else are you known for? Yeah, I mean, you know, I got my start like probably like 10 years ago and I've just been shooting like commercials and music videos basically the whole time. I've also shot some, I've recently just finished a feature documentary. Um, and right now I actually work for a little creative agency. Um, and the reason I did that is, you know, I was always just like showing up to these like cinematography gigs, but they were kind of like these like camera operator gigs and stuff like that. And I just wanted more creative control. So I recently like took on this new like agency gig so I could be more at the the forefront of the concepts and stuff like that. And so that's been really helpful. I've been like been able to make even better work because of that. So that's kind of what I'm doing right now. And then yes, obviously YouTube on the side as a little side fun project. Well, and where are you based? I'm actually in the Midwest. I'm in Oklahoma city, Oklahoma. Oh, okay, cool. So yeah. uh, sort of a similar market situation to me, like a big city, but not a big market necessarily. Not one of the big markets in terms of, you know, that's exactly right. Yeah, like movies come in here and they shoot because we have some kind of like, we have some old architecture and stuff. Mm -hmm. But from like a commercial standpoint, yeah, it's definitely not a big market. Yeah. And um, how, like what what is a normal scale of a production look, of a commercial production look like for you right now? Like I've described it on the show before where we're usually working with, you know, a crew for us is like three to six people, you know, 10 is a lot. How do you work? That's definitely like the exact same scale that yeah. I usually work on. Um, I'm, I'd be lucky to have six people, yeah. <laughs> but I've definitely worked on, you know, I've definitely worked on commercials where I've had more than six people. Um, it just doesn't happen that often. Um, and now just even like with technology changing and everything, sometimes you just, you don't really need that many people mm -hmm. and budgets are already being stretched so thin. So, well, that's the struggle that we're always talking about in terms of just my wife and I's business, like how, how are we going to grow this and what direction do we want to grow it? What do we want to be doing? And in a lot of ways, 
it's not obvious that we just want to do big productions because your chunk of that can kind of shrink and your creative control definitely shrinks as the scale goes up. I definitely aspire to do things like I see in the movies and like I see on TV, like I want our work to look that amazing. And I know you can't do it without a bigger crew, but there are blessings to working small and being nimble and having that full control as well. So yeah, no, it's, it's something, it's something I'm always thinking about is like, how do I make the best of where we are right now? And then also how do we make it look like something bigger than it is? And how much do we even want to make it something bigger? When does bringing an extra set of hands actually create a better final product? Right. Yeah. It's like, it really like, does it matter if I have those extra people there to make the product better or am I, can I do it myself or do I just need to have those people there to like justify the budget Mm -hmm. or like, yeah, I mean, even on some of the bigger brands that I worked for, definitely like my rate wasn't even that much bigger, even though the budget was a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. And honestly, like the creative control sometimes was even worse or we had less time to do something like all that money was crammed into a smaller time frame, which made it harder but that's when you might want to use extra hands to make the set more efficient to get done quicker so well something i've been appreciating with it lately is that when when i look at my work right now um it's fine you know but i see the problems like <laughs> i I, lo- I look at the people i admire and I'm like it does i know i don't look like that uh you know i know i'm not big time and sometimes i'm like sort of grateful that i've been able to spend this time where we're able to work on projects where we have a lot of freedom and a lot of control and we can kind of not screw up, but like if some of that polish is missing, we're working with clients that that's, that aren't as concerned about that. So I can kind of, I don't know, I don't want to make this any clients listening. Like I'm not, I'm not learning on the job, (laughs) I swear, but it's a little bit true. Like if this was, uh, you know, every single client was like a make or break fortune 500 company, there'd be a lot more pressure to I don't know, do better than I think I do. Like I, I look back at my work and I'm like, I wish this looked like it was on TV and I know what TV looks like. We're not quite there. It's like me imagining like we're, we're, pra- we're practicing for the big league someday, but uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to say for anybody else out there that's in the the situation that, you know, it sounds like you and I are in of, um, you know, we've got clients, we've got jobs, always grateful to have work, but uh, you know, don't feel bad because people have bigger crews out there. I mean, that's like always the problem. You're always going to be critiquing your work. Even one day, if you do shoot something like really big like that, you're going to still think, ah, it's just not quite there. So, Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, I hope that's a blessing. That's what it's supposed to be. That's the way I'm supposed to be. Right? That's a better policy. Yeah. Um, well, the big thing I wanted to bring you on to talk about was uh, something we'd been tweeting a bit about and you made a video about people's misconceptions about soft light. Mm-hmm. I wanted to start from a, a kind of, basic level. Oh, and I want to talk about some new cameras as well. I didn't tell you, I didn't tell you any of this, by the way, Spencer's just getting all this dumped on him right now. He's uh, very curiously just showed up and, uh, is, uh, hopefully you can uh, add, add to whatever I throw at you, but yeah, I don't know. You've tried some cameras. I like, I've tried some new cameras. We'll get to that later. Let's start with modifying lighting. Um, the, the big thing that everyone seems to do incorrectly for years. And I know I've addressed this before on the show is the idea that to get soft light, all you need to do is put something in front of your light that will scatter those light particles, diffuse it, break it up, and that will create soft light on your subject. I'm really confused where this idea even came from. Like, Why do people think that in the first place? Because what actually happens, I don't know how we can talk about this for more than 10 minutes, because it's actually a pretty simple concept. What makes light soft (laughs) is the source needs the, the size of the source relative to the distance of the subject. So as a light source gets bigger, it looks softer. So as you the distance part is that if you get further away from your subject, the relative size shrinks, right? So you mm-hmm. need to get an even bigger source and that's going to make it softer. And then the other point of confusion, I'll just sort of lay out the table and then you can uh, tell me what you think. The other point of confusion I think is people equate softness and hardness is not the same as like specularity, which there's more than one attribute of light. I mean, there's more than four as well, but I, I think it's more useful to, to kind of break these apart a bit. And specularity is the, 
sort of the distribution of that light as it shines. So if you turn on a normal light with a normal reflector, by normal, I mean like for photo or video, and you shine it at a wall, white wall, whatever, you're going to see it very hot in the middle and it's going to be softer on the edges. That is specularity. So there's like a hotter point. And on somebody's face, that'll look like a shiny reflection. You could really imagine this if you had a a ball, which, uh, you know, this is what 3D artists, 3D artists understand this completely. Like <laughs> this is like 101 if you're working in 3D, but in the real world, I think we just go buy a softbox and stick with it. If you have a shiny ball, um, you're going to see like a point of light reflecting back if it is specular. And if you have diffused the light, you will see a more even distribution and less of a singular point shining back at you. The softness is not that. The softness is the shadow. Um, so anyway, that's sort of setting it all up. I don't know. What did I get wrong? No, I, th- I think that's, I think it's absolutely right. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, when I made that video is more of just like the frustration with just like, I don't know if it's because of YouTube or what, but it's just like everyone just buys a softbox and just call, oh, okay, now my lighting's going to look good. And that's kind of like why I made that video is like, well, no, there's like a million other ways you can modify your light to make it look good without even buying anything. Just bouncing it off a wall can soften the light and change the quality of it and definitely make it look more natural than a softbox too. So, yeah, I think you especially were bringing up the aperture one twenty D which I love. I mean, I think it's been a fantastic light. It's sort of set the standard for a while and there is a specific light dome, a specific softbox that uh, aperture makes and fits on it and works great. And a lot of people use it. Mm-hmm. What I think you were trying to draw attention to in your video and, and more people should realize is that softbox size and that light work especially well. They give you the look that you want from about like, you know, maybe three feet to six feet away, you get that softness and only for a headshot. <laughs> as soon as you want to light <laughs> exactly. any bigger scene, the the size ratio starts to fall apart. Maybe a softbox isn't your best friend. Uh, so w- what are some of the solutions you went over? Yeah, I definitely talked about like just bouncing light off a wall like close to you because when that light hits that wall, I mean, the wall is a much bigger source. Well, you know, once it reflects off the wall to become a new source where the light's coming from, and that's a much bigger source than um, like a three foot light dome like that. And then definitely I always use the six by six grid and you can get those in like different variations of thickness. Uh, the one I use the most is a quarter grid or like that's pretty close to like a light grid. Um, and so six feet by six feet, that's, you know, that's double what that, aperture light down would be which the the benefit of that is not just softer light but then you can back it farther away from your subject and yeah and you can light a more wide scene because you're going to have the same relative softness that you would maybe with that light dome that softbox but you can back it much farther away from the subject yes so some missing points for me that i think it's just i need to spend more time testing to really grasp is how uh, certain modifications soften things up even more so for example if you want to diffuse the hell out of something you can create a book light scenario, which is kind of what you're, if you combine the two things you just mentioned, you've got a book light where you you could bounce it off a white wall and then you could put a piece of diffusion after the bounce. And now you've like double softened your light and that uh, hits the subject. Mm -hmm. Here's what I kind of don't get about it. That is double diffusing it, but it's not increasing the size necessarily. I mean, if you if you're working with a six by six, either you fill the six by six by blasting light directly into it, or you bounce the light and then that fills the six by six. But either way, your source size is still six by six. So what's going on there? But I think if you go back to talking about what you're talking about, like the specularity, if you're using like the Aperture 120D, for example, you're using that like can that comes on it that makes it that kind of circular source. Well, that's going to be harder in the center of that six by six and six and then diffuse out. So I think when you're bouncing it off the wall, you're just making sure that the source that's hitting it is already also big. Right. Does that make sense? That's how that's how I like apply yeah, it when yeah. I'm using it. I don't know if it's exactly scientific, but that's how I use well, it. Well, yeah. So that's another part of it is like just by making your source big, if you have, let's say you have a 12 by 12. Photographers don't work in this world as much. So I want to like spell it out <laughs> a little bit more that for photography, you more often buy a softbox. And if you're going to buy something big, you get a big softbox. You get a, a seven foot softbox, right? But it's less common to use things that are hanging on a frame. But in cinema, that's like, that's what's always happening. But so yeah, just for any photographers listening as a point of reference, this is what we're talking about is you would get a six by six metal frame or not. I think in your video, you, you were just hanging it off of a pole and you'd mount basically a 
a bed sheet with a fancy name that costs more. <laughs> it's going to scatter your light around. If you take your light, take your 120D, whatever you got, or your flash, your strobe, and you put it one or two feet away from that six by six, it's still only going to come through basically the center of it. And your light source isn't any bigger. And yeah, okay, I'm starting to visualize a little bit better. So now if you back up that light by to like say 10 feet away from your large six by six light source, the light spread starts to get bigger and bigger. And what you're aiming to do is fill that whole area so that it's bright in from like edge to edge. What happens if you bounce it off the wall first is it is perfectly even edge to edge, right? Right. And, and you've also increased the distance. So like the light is traveling the distance to the wall, spreading like crazy, and then filling out edge to edge of that, uh, that big soft box, that big, uh, you know, whatever it is you're mounting in your six by six frame. Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, that's how I would apply it for sure. So the other benefit of the softbox though, is that, you know, it does catch any light from spilling where you don't want it to spill. So that's kind of where you might want to use a softbox over using like the grid because that grid is going to spread it everywhere. And if you have the light not pointing at the back of the grid or the, the your diffuser just a little wrong, then you're going to have your light spilling on the like the back of the scene or whatever, whereas that the softbox contains all of it. So that's kind of the benefit of that. Yeah, and if you're going to be doing, uh, if this is done at a higher level, you're going to be cutting that light. Either there might be a grid on the front of the, I keep calling it six by six, but it could be any size, your frame, right? You could either have a grid that's controlling the light and then you might add flags, like just, you know, big black pieces of fabric hanging off of light stands to the sides to control it. But there will always be some control in a, you know, more professional than, not that we're not professionals, but as you scale up, (laughs) you would start to like make sure that's getting controlled. And a really common application of this is just that if you're lighting an interior and you want it to feel like natural daylight, this is why putting your light outside of the room so that it's shining through a window, the reason that looks realistic is because the window becomes those flags. Like the wall is a natural cutting thing that like shapes the light into a rectangle. And now as it comes into the room, it's shining brighter into the center of the room where it hits. And then the walls in the background may not be getting as much light hitting them and it falls off a little bit darker and that's what a real room naturally looks like and it's more interesting so i don't know that's another application of the same theory but you don't have to buy anything (laughs) just shoot through a window or blast light through a window you know right and that's why you'll see a lot in hollywood too speaking of just like leveling up in the gear world is like they'll use something like a 12k and shoot that through a window because they're literally like recreating the sun and that goes kind of back to like where you're talking about specularity like it's just gonna look better probably if the actual source is that much bigger even though it's farther away because it just is gonna feel more like the sun and it's just gonna look more natural yeah that's the thing i'm constantly fighting at a small scale is to i know that the rule is like if you want things to look natural it's big lights from far away yeah. and that's mm-hmm. hard to do for cheap it's another reason that I really encourage a lot of people that are looking into something like a 120D, try to find room in your budget for the next power level up, especially if you're only getting one light. Try to get a 300D at least, and soon we're going to have a 600D. I mean, these are all apertures. There's there's other brands out there. I just happen to like them the most. But try to get a bigger light. If you can make the your, your budget work, it is so worth it. Even if you don't think you need the power today, you will find you'll find a need for it in the future you know yeah and you'll find that once you start bouncing it and double diffusing oh, it yeah. all that stuff you're losing so much intensity you're definitely going to want a higher output light to start with well and i posted a behind the scenes instagram story the other day from uh in studio shoot we were doing we're in studio we have full control the subject's not that far away and we were shooting through a 10 by 10 diffusion frame and i had three 300 watt led lights just to get my level high enough. Cause it's just, it's not as bright as you think. Like 300 Watts mm-hmm. is not, it's not great. Cause I, the reason was I, I didn't want to be shooting at 1.4 for this. I, I just happened to need some depth of field. It was a jewelry shoot and I, it needed to be sharp. Yeah. That's that can be really hard at, you know, 1.8 or 2.8. So I was trying to get to F4 and just to get to that level, I, yeah, three, three hundreds going through then plus overhead. There is another, uh, 120 on a, in that softbox we're talking about, the Aperture softbox, 120D overhead, 
kind of creating the eye light and the, the, the real key light, even though like the, the one creating shape, you know, you got huge source that was creating our level and then right over top, a lot closer to the subject. We got something that is creating the shadows that you end up seeing. Um, but it took four lights to get to what looks like not that bright of a scene. So, and this actually, this is something I, I wish I understood better is like the relationship between you look at a 300 D for example, how bright is it compared to the movie lights? I hear people talk about in, you know, in, uh, Airy M40 or, uh, I don't know, 18 K or whatever. Like what's that relationship? Yeah. I think when, yeah, like a 300 D you would think would be close to like an M18. So that's like close to like a 2k tungsten it's weird when you're using different types of light they all are like a different they're totally different like how they're like scaled but it's pretty bright like kind of the minimum you would want on like a movie set i think 300d is kind of like where you would start which would be like yeah like an area m18 but even those like they have a bigger source they have a different type of the actual like reflector in it is different so you're going to get different intensity it's going to look different but it's a similar output i think it's funny because the way that we end up thinking about brightness of lights is so based on what you grew up shooting kind of so i wonder if a lot of people right now that's my only reference point it's like oh it's like a 1k or it's like a 2k because i know how bright those are I, all the other numbers mm-hmm. don't help me because I, you know, I don't, I still can't visualize a thousand candela or 500 lux or uh, lumens or any of the other measurements that I know people use more and more often. And I've tried to talk about on the show and failed a few times, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. We got, we got to get to somewhere where we are all understand and can visualize the same standard soon. It just doesn't, it doesn't seem to be getting any closer. No, that'd be super helpful, but it's definitely not there yet. And it, do you say, like when you say a 2K, is that just based on experience having worked with tungsten lights in the past? Yeah. So like when I started, I went to a, a local like kind of like trade college here, but it just happened to, they put a lot of money into the film department. Actually, you know, one of the professors there, he was the producer of like The Godfather uh, like a whole series and like Apocalypse Now. And so they, he was able to get all these grants and get all this money to put, you know, into kind of like this f- actual film department um, right here in Oklahoma. It's super strange. But yeah, and so they got all these tungsten lights to start out with. And so, yeah, like the biggest light that I could get a hold of at the beginning was a 2K. And that was like always my reference point, a 1K or a 2K. And then eventually they got some 4Ks. So, yeah, I started in tungsten lighting. So that's like where my reference point right, is at. Yeah, And it's still a great place to start if you're on a budget. Like, honestly, if you go out and for look sure. at the lols that are available for, you know, you could spend a thousand bucks and get a very complete tungsten kit that has a lot of output, too. Yeah. yeah. You just have to wear gloves after <laughs> yeah. you've had the light on for a little and bit. And make sure you like distribute the plugs that you're plugging into so you don't blow the fuse too often. I mean, <laughs> the way that I use the LEDs in my studio now, I, I couldn't have that many tungsten lights. Like I've really upped the power that we work with lately because of LEDs. We've been able to, you know, they're only drawing 300 yeah. watts, whereas a thousand watt tungsten was drawing a thousand watts from the wall. So, Yeah, absolutely. That was like the main problem when I first started shooting was like... <laughs> You have to do the math in your head. Can I plug this into this outlet? Is this even going to work? Yeah. Am I going to blow a fuse? Blow, blew so many fuses when I first started. Yeah. But now <laughs> you're like pretty safe. I mean, today we're running yeah. we're running three three hundreds off one fuse, and then we did blow it when we forgot and turned on the air conditioner that was on the same fuse. But that's reasonable. <laughs> that uh, I wouldn't expect that to work anyway. <laughs> right. This episode of the Stallman Podcast is brought to you by Timing, the app that tracks your time automatically instead of manually. In today's fast-moving world, the next distraction is right around the corner, which makes it harder and harder to stay on track with your projects and determine how much you really worked. And that's why you need an app to help you stay on top of your time. But manual time tracking can interrupt your workflow. Timing is different. Timing automates your time tracking to save you as much time as possible. First, it automatically tracks how you spend your time on your Mac, broken down by app, website, and document. You can end up with a lot of data to work through, so timing lets you drag and drop to create rules that automatically categorize your time. It'll also suggest to fill gaps in your timeline so you never forget to track a meeting. It can even automatically ask you what you did when you returned to your Mac. With the automatic sync feature, your track time will magically appear across all your Macs, so even when you work on the go with your MacBook, you'll have the full picture on your iMac once you get home. You can track on the go with your iPhone, and the Zapier integration lets you connect timing to services like FreshBooks. And something for fans of shortcuts, timing have shortcuts ready for you to use to make time tracking even easier. 
if you're running a independent production situation, which you, you might be, if you have the patience to listen to the show, you might be in a similar situation to me where you're trying to take on as many clients as you can handle. And of course, make them all a priority, make them all happy, do the best job for each one of them. But of course, it is hard to realize how much time you're really spending on each project. So after you invoice them, do you notice that maybe, you know, you spent a lot more time on this certain kind of project than you expected? Maybe you took a lot more time in post or whatever, but you don't know if you don't track it. That's actually something I noticed in my tracking is that my time distribution between Resolve and Final Cut didn't make a lot of sense because I have to do that pre-grading that I've talked about for my C200 footage. Anyway, I'm reevaluating that whole workflow and you can only do stuff like that if you know how much time you spend on things. Timing is so confident that you'll love their fuss-free approach. They offer a totally free trial. Download the free 14-day trial today by going to timingapp.com slash Stallman. Timingapp.com slash Stallman, S-T-A-L-M-A-N, and save 10% when you purchase. Timing. Stop worrying about timing and focus on doing your best work instead. So thanks again to Timing for their support of this show. So here's the big issue. We get how to make light softer. You make it bigger. But we're one or two or three person crews. What, what what are we supposed to do? Like, how do we get these big soft sources and be able to set them up and tear them down and move them easily? I've come up with some kind of crappy solutions. I don't know. Give me a better idea than what I'm doing. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's why I use the fabric because the fabric can just fold up into like a little bag and you don't have to have like all this machinery, you know, like all these light stands to hold it up necessarily. It's light, you know, it's even lighter and more it's for me, it's easier to transport than a light dome or, you know, a softbox. So, well, so describe how you're doing it as well. You've got a piece of fabric and then what? Yeah. And so, and, and, and tell us more about this fabric because especially in the photo world, we, we only talk about like diffusion mm -hmm. and you just kind of buy default diffusion, but in cinema, there's a lot more granular choices. Yeah. I mean, there's really just different, um, thicknesses of the fabric. So obviously in th the thicker it is in theory, it will diffuse it more. It should spread it more. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's the, similar to what you're talking about diffusion in photography too. Um, I just happen to always use like the quarter or the lighter versions because I don't have very powerful lights. And so I need to have that more output. Um, but yeah, and I, you know, I use a C stand um, and I do what's called T boning the C stand. So I, uh, I put a bar or you could use some sort of frame. I just, my friend, he would just use, you know, like some metal bars from like home Depot that he has put together. And he actually just like made some for me. And that's what I slide through the uh, C stand through the, like the actual gobo head on that. Cause it oh, can just, okay you can just clamp right in there and it, you can break mm -hmm. into two pieces and put it in your car or your vehicle, like wherever it's just so easy to transport by doing that rather than using a six by six or just like a six by frame in T-boning it because those have to have six feet of room to put it like, like I don't have a production van to put a six by a six foot piece of, you know, metal in it. So I use this one that can yeah, break down. Sure. Um, and the common, like, you know, Hollywood style ones, they do not break down. So that's why I do yeah. that instead. And it fits right into a C stand. Um, and so I T-bone it, so I just have to use one C-stand. So if you're using like an actual six by frame, a lot of the times you need two C-stands and then more people, you know, it takes more time to set up and move like you're describing. So that's, that's how I do it. Um, and obviously bouncing it off the wall is just, that's so easy. It spreads a little bit more, mm -hmm. but you don't have to, you don't need another modifier. You don't have to bring anything with but you. But the big challenge is you got to have white walls. You do, it, white walls do help. Walls, like I, I, when I'm doing my YouTube videos, sometimes I actually use my, my wooden cabinets and that actually gives a different color you know it reflects a different color which sometimes i like but obviously that's basically yeah tungsten. yeah it's not ideal <laughs> yeah uh, obviously at all yeah. but yeah i don't yeah it, it's a challenge i mean so what we've been doing lately is i have a big roll of uh Ros or no it's not roscoe it's leaf filters um diffusion i don't remember which one exactly but it's um kind of medium something like a quarter it's not 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 super soft not super not soft <laughs> and uh it's just yeah a roll of plastic that cost 100 bucks and what i've been doing for a while is just hanging the roll off a c-stand oh. but i took it one step further lately and i cut eight foot sections out of it and taped those to a piece of pvc pipe from home depot that you know just cut to the width of the plastic of the diffusion 
roll that up and throw it in the car. And those are incredibly small. I mean, this is like the thin PVC pipe, but it happens to be just a little bit thicker than the pole of a C-stand. So when we arrive at the chute, I can just put a C-stand up, put the arm out. So it's parallel to the floor, hang the diffusion thing off of it and roll it out. And then I've got, you know, an eight by four foot piece of diffusion. And I made two of those so I can put them side by side and have an eight by eight kind of wall. Honestly, the biggest disadvantage to it, there's two. One, it doesn't stay still very well. So like, I don't know, it, there's something to be said for like stability on set and they are quite floppy. Uh, you're putting all your weight onto one side of a C-stand that's going up pretty high, which like, I don't love when you don't have a crew, like nobody's really managing it. You may not have as many sandbags as you wanted and you can't do much with it outside at all, which outside is a problem with the frame anyway. I mean, everything's going to blow around, but like it's just hanging plastic. So it really moves. And then, um, the other, wait, no, maybe those are both issues. Oh yeah. The other issue is it just looks cheap. It looks, it looks a little bit ghetto and you know, you, you want to look cool for your clients. So I, I don't love that aspect of it. Yeah. The PVC pipe definitely screams Home Depot. Yes. Like a, <laughs> it's going to always happen. So I don't know. I don't know. It's like, it's work. It's working. It's an improvement. I'm not satisfied, but the light looks pretty good. I didn't have a way to make light that big right. before. So yeah. And the fabric has its own weight to it. So it's a little bit more rigid because it just it's just heavier when it hangs right um and it's it's not that expensive i mean i've recommended using a shower curtain on my channel before because that would definitely give you a similar look and be like 12 dollars versus 120 dollars that these pieces of fabric cost so but then once again you're showing up to a shoot with a shower curtain so (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's even one step more ghetto than uh than mine (laughs) but I think if, um, you know, it could, it could actually make sense to do my setup with fabric as well. You know, like roll a piece of fabric mm-hmm. onto a pipe. And if you attached it in a nicer way than I did, which is just gaff tape. I don't know. Like, I don't know. There's, there's something here. I feel like there's a way to make this look more professional, still be practical. Like, what if you had two pipes? I still don't know how it's attached. But you have two pipes and you like roll it up like a scroll. But one of the pipes falls and hangs on the ground and is like kind of pulling the weight down. I'm yeah, that's a pretty good take idea. Take a step further. But, you know, I am trying to get to a point where we can set up something bigger, bigger than the 6 by 6 Like I'm trying to get to like an 8 by 8 or 10 by 10 as a normal because there's so many situations where you want a whole, you know, a whole room, like a, a large area to be lit up. Um, or somebody needs to be lit from head to toe for one of the shots. It's just impossible. It feels like to do that with, you know, regular softbox. I mean, yeah, if you're just walking in with softboxes, you're going to have a bad time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, on the wide shots, I don't know if you're talking about for video or for photo, but like on the wide shots, at least you can have a little bit more forgiveness with how soft the light is. It's actually kind of nicer to have a little bit of a harsher light. So you can like define the subject, edge them out a little bit more. So that's kind of always my my take on that. Yeah, it's totally true. I, I, if you watch a movie, any movie closely, you'll realize like, oh, the wide shots look a little worse. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the, it's not as precise. It's a lot more just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's lit for the room, not for the people. And then as they come in for the, the tighter shots, it's, it's much more precise. But in terms of photography, uh, you know, your bouncing thing, people do realize that about like just pointing your flash at the ceiling is, you know, one of the first tips event photographers get. So I think a lot of people do know to do that, but I don't think they, that everyone inherently understands what's going on and why it makes things look better. Mm -hmm. But my, my point most of all is that you can't put, uh, there's these things. Were you into photography at any point? Yeah, I was when I first started for sure. Do you know the Gary Fong flash diffusers? Oh, they like a little like kind of like ball that goes on top. Exactly. Like light. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. It's just like a little rubber plastic ball and it's just diffusion. And I've seen so many people using those. And the problem is like, if that's still pointed at your subject, the source is almost no bigger. <laughs> like it's going to make basically yeah. so minimal of a difference. Yeah. That's the problem. With, I mean, speed lights are so small Yeah, as they are. Yeah. So, so often if you need, if you want to get like a soft light, you you just go find the nearest white wall. Or if, you know, you can make something that feels pretty studio if you can get a friend to come and hold a reflector for you. Because all of us, I've done this a few times where like you've just got, you know, a big, what's like a normal reflector. It's like two by two feet about, I think. Is that, no, two by, that'd be a bit short. It's more like three by 
Yeah, I think three. Yeah, two by three, three by. That sounds about yeah, right. I don't know. Think about like yeah, five in one reflector. They're like thirty dollars on Amazon. Super cheap. But have a friend hold that with the white side, not the silver side, because that'd be way too shiny. And just point, get the friend to stand beside you, pointing the reflector towards the subject. Take your flash and angle it into that reflector there, and all of a sudden you've got a you know three by three foot softbox. Uh, it works incredibly well. It means you do need another person. So that's kind of, there's not always two people for an event photography thing, but all of a sudden it really can look like studio lighting. That's, mm-hmm. that's the only way to get there when you're out and about and you're just using a, you know, camera top flash solution. Have you uh, looked into the light tiles at all? Uh, which ones are those? Uh, is that like ones, light mat? Like those ones? Light mat, light tiles. So you could like have like an eight by eight, yeah, yeah. but it's, LEDs built into it and they would just unfold and then you have an eight by like right there with the, with the source is the actual fabric, I guess in that way. Well, I'm looking up light tiles right now. Cause I didn't see, Oh, okay. Light tile is by light gear. It's the big one. Oh, like light gear. Yes. yes. And so you can like okay. basically stick them together. Yeah. I don't know if they come that way, but that's what it looks like. It's like a bunch of one by one led mats but then you can put them together to make larger sources and like enormous sources the craziest example of this yeah. hopefully i'll find a shot of it but in ford versus ferrari which i finally saw and is insanely beautiful inside the ford factory to create daylight at any time that they wanted i think they shot a bunch of it at night and there's a whole just, just a bank of windows on one side of this factory all windows head a uh, floor to ceiling in you know a four-story factory, they just blacked out the windows on the outside. So first they just blocked all the sunlight and then built these light tiles going up all four stories. The whole factory is just like surrounded by LED lights to make it look like the sun, which is such an insane solution. But I mean, it worked. And then you watch the movie and you're like, oh, it just looks like normal life. Like there's nothing. Yeah, you would never notice. (laughs) Yeah, you don't think about it for a second, but... (laughs) But yeah, at a way more practical level. I mean, I am so hot for like your stuff. The um, it's not that expensive. Like it's totally attainable, but it's not cheap either. Mm-hmm. So I, I keep thinking about getting something like the. I'm trying to pull up the names because I kind of forget. But like the four by two foot, I think would be right. Yeah, I the, use that and that doc- sweet and documentary I've been shooting, and it's so easy just to. That will, it's so oh, light. It's made yeah. out of like nothing. It weighs like maybe two pounds. So you can put it on a C stand, no problems. Like you were talking about not having the right, you know, sandbags around and stuff like that. But those, those light mats are so light. You can put them anywhere, basically. You can, you can gaff tape them to a wall. So, yeah, I think the name of what I'm thinking of is like a S, so light mat S24. That's four mm-hmm. by two feet. And that's 2300 US dollars. It's quite a bit, but you could get smaller ones. So there's like the S2 L2. That's looks like one foot by four feet, I would guess. And that's 1700 bucks. So like they're pricey, but they're mm-hmm. really awesome. So, they're but that's really what you're awesome. actually, you were using light mat specifically like that brand. Yeah. I use those for a little, for probably four days of this. I was doing just, a, just so many interviews and I wanted them all to like look different, but we didn't have a big budget. Obviously it's like a documentary and we were like moving around a lot and those, yeah, they were just, so easy to put up by, by myself, or I did have a grip for that one, but yeah, those specific ones. I use the S4s, I think, on that one. So I think those are like four by threes or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So were, were you um, diffusing it as well or were you using it? Because like, I know it comes with a little softbox attachment that you can Velcro on. Right? Yeah, I would put just that that one little layer on no matter what. Just that The point of that really is though to make sure you don't have like those little LED spots um, right. like creating yeah. multiple shadows and that's why right. i would do that um and then like for like if it was like an interview i would put the one light mat as close as i could get to the frame and the, of like outside the frame of the, the actual lens that way it could be as soft as possible and get it right by the subject but then i would put them in the background act like being motivated from other lights in the room so like kind of like overheads like i did one in like in a kitchen and i put it over the island to make it look like there was a light there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could have full control of it and dim it and get all the ratios right. And it looked really great. That's what I really want these for is being able to get overhead for indoor situations. I mean, I want it for everything because it's just it's super <laughs> adaptable. But that'd be a, a great example is being able to literally tape it to the ceiling and just have that invisible soft source that you don't necessarily have to think about too much. Uh, and is maybe it's just adding level to the room. Like it may, it totally may not be like the light, 
but it can be, you know, like they're, they're yeah. just, they're incredibly versatile. Yeah. I, I mean, I really like the look of them. Yeah. I mean, taping them to the wall. I, I don't know if you follow any of Chase Irvin. He's a cinematographer, but he, uh, he did that he Apple has, commercial with the Apple watch. I think. Yes. The, the he, Apple watch commercial. With all the I don't, um, he, he basically made his like own set of LEDs. I was following mm. him on Instagram and he was talking about this, but yeah, because you can just tape like the cables to the wall and he would basically put them where you would want to maybe bounce a light, but be, but that way you don't have to have another light source in the room and worry about the stands being in the shot or whatever. And he would just, you know, fill, fill different parts of the room with those mats and it would totally blend in, but give you a, you know, a really bright source and soft all the time. Mm, sounds like I should be following him on Instagram. Yeah, probably so. He probably, he doesn't post as much anymore. That was a while ago when he did, but okay. yeah. No, I love that idea though. Like, I don't know. It, it's funny because like technology is really defining the look of cinematography so much lately, even in the f- way of like that, what we're getting for cameras. Um, once, you know, once the Alexa LF becomes popular, all of a sudden everything is shot on full frame and like yeah. technology really is setting the tone for what our world looks like now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Was it a uh, Greg Frazier and he like, when he did Star Wars, he was using like the digital Sputnik lights. Mm-hmm. He's like, I use, he used them for everything. <laughs> yeah, but like, like yeah. it looks like Star Wars because of that, which is weird, even though it was shot in a totally different time period. <laughs> yeah. But there's something about it that gives it that very specific look. Yeah, totally. Or, you know, the other thing that seems to be taking off is Titan tubes mm-hmm. are kind of everywhere, which I would also love a kid of. But that's, that's the thing. It's like, it's funny we're at this point where there's all of this really, there's affordable versions of all this stuff that we're talking about, right? Like we're talking about the light mats, which are a few grand. The Titan tubes are a thousand bucks each, but of course you could also get the, wait, what are the, I think you posted the even cheaper ones. It's Quasar Science, which aren't Quasar, battery powered. And then Nanlite is the one I got Nanlite, yesterday. Right. Two of the four foot ones and then two of the two foot ones. And those are, man, yeah, those are RGB. So you can change them to basically any color and they're battery powered. So. Oh, they're battery. Of, oh, I thought they were yeah. plug-in. Yeah, you so can do, do like either it? or. So then, yeah, I could you could easily like mount that very close to a wall or even like set it. Like I could set it on my shelf and it could be acting as a key light or an edge light of something, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it really is a that part of the dream. I don't know. I just love this idea of once lights are lightweight enough to get near the ceiling indoors without a ton of rigging, there's all these advantages. It means that, you know, you can have lights coming from exactly the right spot behind your subject without a stand being there, right? Right, right. Um, so all these opportunities are gradually opening up and they're you know, I, we're really so close to being available to the smaller crews like us, where we could walk in there with a little suitcase of RGB tubes, uh, a cheaper version of a light mat, and one Aperture 600 once it's out. And there's your, you know, there's like a kit you can do most of the jobs out there with. And one or two people can set up pretty painlessly. Yeah. We're fortunate that that's, that time is happening now. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, really, anybody listening, like you are, you're getting into this at the right time. This is the time to get to pick up this hobby for sure. What, are the, what else you got for lighting tips before we move on? Mm. Or what else have you been doing for lighting lately? Like, what's uh, what's like your go to? I'm sitting down and setting up. Is it the uh, into a wall and into a uh, the soft, or how often do you use? It well, I really, it really depends on the the space. I always look at the space and that's why sometimes I don't because it's like we we're talking about the stands being in the wrong place or they're going to definitely be in the frame if I want to put that there. So that's when I just I start with a bounce to see what it'll look like. It's it, it's all, you know, lighting is all just like a game of problem solving. And you're like, I want the light here. Now, how do I get it there? And you have to, mm-hmm. you know, each space is different where the subject at is always different. So that's kind of the whole thing. Um, but I always, you know, I always start with subjects here how do i get a light you know like we've talked you've talked about before on your podcast like getting the light on the other side of the face and then what where is it coming from why is the light coming from there is it motivated by something and once i start i think like the motivation is always like a amazing place to start am i using a window or is this coming from a lamp in the room where is light coming from and why actually that motivation thing that reminds me of something i've seen you do more than i've done and that's intentionally letting tungsten play as tungsten uh, yeah. Which happens, it happens if you mix light in a way that there's a lamp in the room and you've got a window that is your main source. Mm-hmm. Or if everything everything just is tungsten and you let it go yellow. 
my instincts just fight so hard against letting the room turn yellow, but it happens in cinema. Like, you know, it happens. You see it in movies all the time. What is, I don't know. Walk, walk me through that. Yeah. Like, think- are you shooting? Are you like rating for daylight? Are you setting your camera to 5,600 and then shoot the lights are 32 or whatever? I've experimented with both. I think the first time I heard, I heard um, someone, it was a it, David Fincher, basically. He, they talk a lot about like when he did that girl with the dragon tattoo or like social network, they were just keeping the camera at 4,000 Kelvin for every single shot. Weird. It probably not for a straight daylight shot, but basically if they were interior 4,000 Kelvin and they were just gelling or changing the color temperature appropriately to get the like mix that they wanted. Um, Yeah. And so 4,000 kind of puts like the tungsten isn't so warm, but it's there's, but there is contrast. It's just fun. It's so counterintuitive because you set it 4,000 and then everything is wrong. I mean, <laughs> wrong, wrong in quotations, right? But that's what, especially, that's what my photographer instincts tell me. It's like, wow, you're just r- intentionally ruining everything. <laughs> but uh, but then what? Are you gelling things to come in between? So and, and anybody listening that hasn't memorized the numbers, you know, 5,600 Kelvin is, or 55 actually, depends what you're looking at. That's like the number pe- most people think of as daylight, 31 or 3200 is kind of the range that common tungsten is at. So 4000 is in between those. Would you be, if you're rating your camera for 4000, would you then gel the daylight to be a little warmer and the tungsten to be a little bit cooler? Like, would you try to squeeze them together to get closer to 4000 or are they just leaving them at their respective original? I think that they were, they were definitely gelling them to get them a little closer. But so like when I do it, it's just not very practical to do the 4,000 because you're right. Everything is wrong because you're right in the middle. So I usually go into it with like an intentionality. Like I want this to look warm. So I'm actually going to keep the camera closer to five or 5,600 Kelvin and then, and and then just use a tungsten balanced uh, light. And so I'm going to get that immediate like warmth out of it. So that's how I've been doing it. And then even like, you know, I've been using this LED light that you can, it's a bicolor. So I can bring it back a little bit towards daylight if I think it's just too, too much. But I usually just leave it like 3200 mm-hmm. Kelvin. Yeah, that's the same one I was talking about in the video. The DNA. Yeah, the, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, same one that you have. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to, I want to play with that more. Also, because I want to start getting practicals into my shots more often. Uh, like I want to see the sources a little, or like the, not the real sources. I want to see the motivation a little bit more. That's just I would not just something I do right now. Be careful a little bit with cameras that don't have like a high color latitude because I think mm-hmm. if you don't ex- use the right color temperature with those, they do fall apart really fast. Yeah, I'd be super. I'd, if you're going to do this with any eight bit camera, I'd test, test, test before you do this on yeah. a job. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I feel yeah, I feel a little safer, you know, uh, being able to shoot raw, but. Um, if you're not, if you can't shoot in more than eight bits, then yeah, watch your, watch yeah. Cause yourself. the 12 bit camera is going to have such a bigger range. You could just turn it on and you're already going to notice that the contrast of colors is not as like, yeah, well, contrasty. Yeah. Well, I really notice it in the same camera in the C200. If I shoot stupid C200, it only has eight bit or 12 bit. Thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> but the eight bit just, it, it mixes the light uglier <laughs> shooting right. the exact same scene. Cause I've done that a few times. It's like, I don't know, my, uh, my raw, I filled the camera with raw, so I couldn't shoot anymore. And I had to switch to MP4 or ABC and it's the eight bit. Just, it's so hard to get it to feel the same, to get to really match. It's not, it's not the same, no. but, uh, this drifted us in the topic of cameras. So, um, I should, I, I didn't write a list, but, uh, the, the first camera on my mind, and then, uh, you can tell me what you've been playing with lately is the Fuji G, well, that's not what it's called, X-T4. Yes. And do you have any interest in this camera? Have you? Do you try Fuji's? Um, it's really funny that you asked that. So um, there's all this kind of hype around the X-T4, and then I've been um, talking with, do you, do you follow Patrick Tommaso on Twitter? Yeah. Um, and he's been you know playing around with some Fuji cameras, and I was got interested in that, and I started looking into the X-T4, like you know the rumors were coming out that it was about to come out. But they're basically, it's an X-T3, but with like a flip-out screen and like mm-hmm. a couple little software tweaks. So I like kind of went and down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and the in body stabilization, exactly. Um, and then the moment it was announced, I saw that, confirmed all that. And then I was like, you know what? Like, I want a new camera to like inspire me, like to get out and start shooting more. Yeah. And also I need a lighter camera for YouTube. I do have like the Pocket 4K, but that camera does not inspire me at all. I don't know why, but <laughs> so I, I just immediately bought a used Fuji X-T3. So I've had oh, that for about nice. a week now. 
um, maybe two weeks now. And I, I love it. And so it does also shoot the 10 bit 4k as well. Yes, right? it does. I think the video features are almost identical except for the 240 frames per second. Cause I didn't follow the Fuji's that much lately until like they sent me review models for these last few. So that's why I was able to play with them. I've always liked Fuji's. I've always been interested in them. Mm-hmm. We own the X 100 F I just don't spend a lot of time shooting them. So I didn't know much about the X-T3. I I don't know the model features previously, so I'm just kind of catching up on it as I've been using the X-T4. But, oh man, like I feel like this camera is way underhyped for video. Like a lot. Uh, Both of them. I mean, yeah, I think that includes yours. But the 10-bit 4K, especially in 60, like it looks so good and does not have the banding that everything else I've used has. I mean that, you know, Sony's and Canon's. And it, yeah. You know, it's four two zero ten bit, but it, it's amazing. And I know everyone talks about the Canon color science, but I love the color science out of these Fuji cameras. Oh, and for sure. I was talking to Patrick about this and it's just like, why are these cameras not hyped? Just what you said. Like, why is, why is no one talking about these cameras? Mm-hmm. Cause this is like one of the, one of my more favorite cameras that I've used in a while. And I've used a lot of cameras this last year. Like I've tested well, out a lot of cameras. I think I know why. I mean, it deserves the hype. In, in terms of colors, Canon gets more attention because it's bigger, because more people try it. Mm. Um, and I think it's because they have options that more professionals are going to choose. And the same reason I'm not going to switch to Fuji, even though I think they're doing an amazing job, is I need a full frame option for stills, especially. Like I just, I, I would be limiting myself in my career to only be shooting cropped, um, to, to always be fighting for that depth of field. You know, for, for video, like, yeah, you can definitely live without it, but it's just sort of expected in stills i know if simbrash is listening right now he's uh, yelling at me that i mean okay people take amazing photos on fujis with lachelle to feel they get it uh but it's it, it's hard you got to work for that and um there's there's less options so i think it's just that more professionals end up in the canon ecosystem so they you hear more professionals getting excited about the color but yeah those the 10-bit video samples i shot on that fuji looked fantastic better easy i think they were a little easier to make look great than my eos r not than the c200 c200 looks better but right it's it's amazing they still look so good and the lack of banding is the best part i don't feel like people warned me enough before getting my eos r just like <laughs> how easy it is to still make it it band um which i thought i thought it'd be better because like the the log is not crazy flat it's pretty easy to balance the color back out of it and i thought it'd be able to hold up to that grade a little more than it does and it it bends more than i'd like it to and i just saw none of it yeah i think a lot of people talk about the canon on youtube but i'm in the same way i've had i did not get great results out of the canon and maybe it's because i push my colors too much maybe i push my cameras too much but i did not see that where i'm getting really good results out of the fuji already yeah and honestly i think so much of it is the bit rate yeah for sure it, it really helps and that you can just crank up the file size too. That's awesome. And like, so the interface is so straightforward with it. When you want to set your bit rate and frame rate and all that on a Canon, you just get a grid of like, here's every possible choice, which is like 30 <laughs> different things. Right. But on the Fuji, it's awesome. You just flick through these menus up and down and you're like, okay, frames per second, 60. Wait, what are the things? Well, but then there? you can get that uh, 200 megabits per second or 400 and yeah, you can just quickly exactly. decide if you want the lower or higher bit rate totally. rather than going through all the menus. So yeah. smart. And then on a Sony, you just can't even turn up. Like there's no high bit rate. It's all 50. It's all <laughs> yeah. lower than the lowest on the right. Fuji. And Sony's the one that everybody's choosing. I don't know. I don't know. I, the, the Fujis are awesome. If anybody out there is thinking of it for video, dive in. It's so good. I, I want to talk about the stills as well for a second. They were great. The lens I had was the F4 zoom. So I was a little frustrated with how slow it was. I don't know, just because I'm used to faster lenses. But... It was super sharp. Focus was never an issue. The image quality is great. I didn't, it's funny. I spent the whole time testing it. I never checked how many megapixels because I just don't care how many megapixels anything is anymore. Like as long as it's less than 40, I'm happy. Honestly, I would only check to make sure the number's not too high. It's never too low. There's no cameras that don't have enough megapixels. It's just like, oh, is there, are the files going to be bigger than I have room to to deal with? And I'm happy to report they're not on on the (laughs) X-T4. Usability was great. I mean, yeah, it's a, like, honestly, if you're thinking about, this is a good time for Fuji. Fuji is having a great year. Uh, I really like what they're doing. Yeah. And I think, you know, I talked to Patrick about this, like you, 
you might want to get a Fuji if you're looking for that kind of like filmic vintage vibe. It does it in camera for you if you want to like shoot to a JPEG and kind of get that look. Obviously, you could do that in post with any other camera. But just like the usability of it, kind of treating it like a digital film camera is what's been fun for me. And to like add to that, you were talking about full frame and you, I don't know if you can tell in my videos, I like full frame as well. So that I was definitely like apprehensive when I bought it, but I did just buy the Viltrox speed booster for it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Those are kind of pricey still though, right? It's like hundreds of bucks. Yeah. This one's like 180 and I don't oh, like, okay. That's better I don't I usually use Viltrox cause I'm nervous about their quality control versus like Metabones. Mm. But this one definitely like has some, it adds some characteristics to it that you may not want if you're using it professionally but it definitely gets you basically full frame has autofocus although i'm not using autofocus because i basically only have manual lenses but like to get that kind of vintage vibe still the this this speed booster has been really great i think it'll be really awesome to use like on youtube and stuff because it does it is full frame now but it's like on this little camera and it like Mm -hmm. does the 10 bit so i'm pretty excited about that yeah awesome What, what have you been testing lately what do you like yeah um so I've been doing a lot of full frame camera tests because it's just kind of like the new, it's kind of like that's the new new is like, oh, we can do yeah, full sure. frame and 10 bit now. So that's like been really exciting for me. Um, so I did the Panasonic S1H. I've done a couple of videos over that one. That camera is, I think if people are looking for the kind of like hybrid style, like DSLR style camera, mirrorless style, that's kind of the, to me, that's the best one. Hands down, it's the best one for video. Yeah, it it's so good. It is very large. Like, it is not something you want to hang around your neck and take with you somewhere. Like, you might, you can do that, <laughs> but it's like, I think it's heavier than like a pocket 4K. Like, it's big. It's funny because um, it's already out. I feel like it's not getting enough attention. I mean, I'm not talking about it much because I don't pay attention to Panasonic because mm-hmm. I don't have any lenses. <laughs> I think it's going to be better than the new Canon that I'm looking like that I'm probably going to buy. You know, everybody's there's so much hype around the Canon R5, meaning that mm-hmm. right? Because like, oh, maybe it's going to have 8K. It's not going to have all the 10 bit and like the super high quality of the S1. Like, I, I think it will not be as good of a camera for video specifically. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Canon always cripples their camera in some way, it seems like, whereas Panasonic is trying to be kind of like, it's like the Android versus Apple debate. Like mm-hmm. Panasonic's like, we're going to put everything in this camera. <laughs> it's all there. It's definitely built for filmmakers. Um, but it is $4,000. I mean, US. Yeah, so right. I think that's maybe why the hype, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like maybe that's why. Like people that are looking in that market, like 4000 might be right past the number that they're wanting to spend on something like that. Yeah, I don't know. But, you, but you're into it. I mean, you would... Give it a strong recommendation. I would give it a very strong recommendation. And then the other one I like kind of compared it to was the Sigma FP because it's like 1800 US, 1900 US. I um, want to love that camera. I love the idea of it. It's just, it's not a good like grab and go camera. Like it's just so small. Like it's just a sensor, you know, but it. But that looks it, so cool. I know, well, the, I know. <laughs> <laughs> what seemed like the issue, I think it was from your test that I noticed this, was it It just didn't seem to have the dynamic range I would hope for. It definitely has a very, it's the dynamic range is just mapped in a really weird spot. The ISO, the native ISO is 100. And when you're like coming from the cinema world, you're like working in that 800 ISO like all the time. So you're talking about all these, you know, earlier when we were talking about lights and stuff and how powerful they are. Well, if you're like, you have to stay at 100 on that camera. You, you can crank it up. It does really well like in low light because that's where the dynamic range is mapped. It's like in the lower end of the spectrum. So mm-hmm. like, yeah, you go outside with that thing and the dynamic range is like just really not good. And it was really sad because everything else about the camera from an image quality standpoint is really good. Like really good. Mm-hmm. So that was like, that's kind of what was the game changer for me too. It's like kind of like, I don't think I want that camera because I just would be really upset. Like the S1H had way more latitude than the Sigma. Yeah. I want, I mean, I want it to be good. I want Sigma to be in there. I want them to be like <laughs> fighting the fight. I love the idea of it. I don't know. It feels like they, they didn't quite make it on this I one. I mean, yeah, the S1H has, you know, only a codec that does 400 megabits per second. And then the Sigma FP is literally recording raw DNG at like 2000 megabits per second. But if you don't have the dynamic range, you're going to be kind of bummed out in a lot of situations. No, even, I mean, that's the thing. it's like, I don't care about the, the bit rate if there's no dynamic range. That was my complaint about the Canon 5D4 and the 1DX3. Uh, all these people using them for videos and they're shooting them to actually, yeah, Justin, that was just on the show the other day. Um, you're recording it to a CF card and it's filling like a 64 gig card fills in under 10 minutes and it's not raw and you don't have, you have normal dynamic range. 
it's just like a flat photo that's really big. But like, what good is the bit rate if your highlights are still blown out? You know? Yeah, it's just like not practical at all to shoot yeah. with those cameras. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, and then the, the other big one that I don't have my hands on and that is the, the, the my white whale is the 500 or C500 Mark II, which is just like, I think the best, like the most balanced, perfect camera in a while. And I really wish I had one. Basically, if it had come out when I was buying my C200, I would have put the extra money into that. It would absolutely be worth it. But as it stands, my C200 is too new to be upgrading. And I knew this, and I'm sure I talked about it on the show when I made the decision, like the C200, I was buying it as an old camera, knowing like, okay, something will come out. I honestly just didn't think it'd be that good and that soon. <laughs> like <laughs> that it'd be full frame and solve every problem that I have with the C200. Yeah, and it does have that 10-bit option. Yeah. So you don't have to do the raw. It can just be that in-between for you for most of your shoots, you know? Yeah, and I would I would use that a lot. I mean, I only can't, I have to use the raw in this because the gap between 8-bit and 12-bit is so huge. But from everything I've seen and from everything I know, I mean, the, the, the 10-bit on the C500 looks great like you don't need it's fine for most yeah. things yeah, it looks great um, and it's full frame the other the thing that's been killing me lately is that i can't monitor the actual image being recorded on my c200 this is a very niche issue so f- forgive me for com- but maybe maybe you'll have an answer for me i'm sure you i don't think you will if you haven't used a specific camera so when you're recording in raw the Gamma that or gam, gamut, which one's which? Gamma that it wants to use is uh, Canon Log Two, which is like the flattest Canon profile and looks great. What you can preview is not that, and I actually can't find any information about what I am seeing in my monitor. It's not fully log. It's not fully Rec Seven Hundred Nine. Like it's not, it's pretty flat, but it's not all the way flat. The only way I can see a log image is I can switch to HDR PQ as my monitoring preference. But then the documentation all disappears because nobody seems to be using that. And my waveform changes so that things are clipping past 80 IRE on my waveform. And all of a sudden, my waveform like doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I'm like, well, wait, I can't fill it all the way. I don't know where middle gray is. So these are really like specific issues, but they've been driving me insane because I just want to be able to do the way things the way professionals do it, you know? <laughs> You yeah, like, I mean, yeah. is, is the C200, that's considered a professional professional camera. I mean, it should be. Yeah, yeah. and it's just like not outputting that. I, when you tweeted that, I was just like, my jaw like fell open. I was like, what do you mean? Like, that, yeah. like even like a Pocket 4K or whatever is going to output that signal. I was I was so surprised. Well, even a EOS R, I mean, everything. Yeah. Everything, it, it outputs what it's recording. I mean, as an option, at least. Yeah. And you just can't. That is so, so surprising. But yeah, so I don't know. If anybody out there listening knows about C200s, what am I seeing if I output HDR PQ? It is clearly log. I don't think it's going to be Canon Log 2. It's probably Canon Log 3. What is it and how can I use that to monitor something close to my final image? Because the goal, the whole goal here, uh, I, all I was trying to do is I got new monitors. Oh yeah, I could also talk about this for a second. Oh, we got some small HD monitors. I'll get to that in one moment. I was trying to set up false color on them. Like, oh, this would be great. So now I can, you know, sort of pull up some references of like movies I like, look at their false color, look at the stuff that I'm shooting, see how it maps out, matches up, compare ratios. And then I realized like, wait, I can't program false color at all because there's no relationship between what I'm shooting and what's being shown on my monitor. Do you use like a shooting LUT on your monitors, like on your new monitors? Are you using some sort of LUT to get you to a place when you're shooting? That's what I was trying to do. That was the yeah. whole goal of this. But then yeah. I realized to create the LUT, I need to do it on the computer, but I need to see the same thing on the com- computer. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know what the profile is that my monitor is yeah, showing. Yeah, you're going to have to do a lot of testing to make it like get pretty close. Yeah. Man. So, yeah. I don't know. I'm struggling with that. Um, monitors, though. Mm-hmm. We uh, finally decided to bite the bullet and get some fancy monitors because... We had just had a few clients bring up wireless monitoring and kind of having wanted to monitor on sets. We're like, you know what? Let's invest in it. Uh, and then right at that time, Small HD had a sale. And so we got the Cine 7 500 Bolt and the Focus 7 500 uh, or Bolt. 
which um, the, the focus was the receiver, the cine was the transmitter. They're both pretty awesome. Small HD makes great monitors. The colors look great. The brightness from the cine is amazing. It is like totally daylight viewable. We were shooting outside for a day with it and it was fantastic. But the wireless started to not work and eventually completely stopped working. So right now I've sent it back to small HD and I'm um, hoping they send me a replacement that actually works. So I don't know, sort of a, a, a incomplete report card on it at the moment, but I don't do, know. Uh, I wanted to, to just be like all positive about how great they are, but do they have a, like, I know I have, so I have the, so wait, the Cine seven and I, I have the seven touch. Um, yes. And AK, it's, you know, it's very bright. It has those heat sinks on the back of it. It's extremely hot if you have yes. it on for a long time, but so with the with that bolt, so like the Teradex built into it or whatever, are there like large seat heat sinks on the back of that too? Because I would guess that thing would get so hot. It looks identical, and I think it probably gets the same amount of hot. It is very it is very hot, but I, it doesn't seem it doesn't literally burn you. Well, so, I mean that's what my guess would be that like man strapping a wireless mm-hmm. kit to the back of where all this heat is being pulled from. I don't mm-hmm. know. I was like wondering if that's why it could go, go out. So easily I don't, I don't even know where the wireless stuff is. Cause they look the same size, you know, I don't know oh, where they're, they're hiding it. Huh. Yeah. And it, it's funny. You have the touch. So I, that's what I would have gotten if they made a wireless version. Cause the Cine has all this, the big difference is that you can control, uh, Alexa's and, and reds with it. Like right. you were able to pull up the touch interface, which would be amazing. I would, love that like that oh that would completely change how i use my canon but it doesn't do that for canons so (laughs) yeah so i wouldn't i probably wouldn't have gone with it except for the sale made it enough cheaper than like okay now it's not so unreasonable to buy this extra feature that i can't use right um but yeah anyway small hd i just i really hope they can fix it because these were super expensive especially to buy two (laughs) together you know it's like four grand or whatever now do those work with any other teradex system or can you yeah it? yeah okay yeah it's just part of the whole bolt system so you can have bolt transmitters or receivers or or whatever as long as it's in the the 500 range i think the the series has to match because teradex also makes further transmitters i don't remember mm-hmm. the numbers probably a thousand mm-hmm. but uh you I, th- I think it has to be all within the 500 which is totally fine for the way i work i can never more than 500 feet away I don't know. It's a struggle. I'm trying to trying to figure it out. Well, hopefully they get that fixed for you. Oh, yeah. I hope so. I mean, they said they would, so I don't yeah. know. But then, of course, they might also send it back, and it's like, great, we fixed it. And it's like, oh, it's still it, – it turns out these are just flaky, and nobody else talks about it. Nobody told me. I don't know. There's actually very <laughs> few in-depth reviews about this. Um, it's tough because as you deal with more expensive – you know, small, more niche products, there's just so many less people talking about it. There's way more reviews about the Focus – uh, there actually isn't a in-depth YouTube review about the Cine 7 at all. And it's their, well, I don't know if it's their flagship now, but it's like, it's up there, you know, like that's right. They're, they're pushing it as a, a near flagship monitor and mm-hmm. there's no reviews because it's a bit more expensive. So YouTubers don't buy it generally. Yep. That's right. It is but out so, of that range. Yeah. So what do you see in your future? You're, you're going to keep doing both commercial and YouTube, I assume. Uh, Yeah. I don't plan on stopping either one. I mean, if, at some point YouTube kind of takes off a little more. It can take over a little bit more, but right now it's just kind of the fun thing to do on the side. It keeps me shooting too. You know, sometimes you have lulls in between shoots and it's good to like just exercise your creative mind and just shoot something, you know, experiment with new things. So that's why I do YouTube. That's also, I, you know, I, when I first got into YouTube, I was watching it and it would just frustrate me that people weren't using them in a practical way. And so that's kind of why I started the channel. Oh, for sure. I mean, so much of YouTube for me was like, you guys aren't saying the things I want you to say so i'm gonna go say them <laughs> i mean i would hunt i would hunt like online for hours like trying to find like well what what about this camera in this environment and just like hunting and hunting and hunting it's like no one has it and you're like yeah. well i could just do that i'm gonna play yeah. with that camera anyways at some point or something you know and so i started doing that so well if this raises any questions for you guys come find us on twitter and ask uh either spencer or myself and we'll uh, we'll try to help clear you up yeah absolutely thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me appreciate it